you know, I really love action comedy. I love action adventure comedy. I just find like when that's done really well, it's so satisfying to get, make, have people laugh and to have them, you know, give them some thrills or chills and uh, fun, entertaining experience. Those are the kind of movies I loved growing up. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, an agent attempts to capture the world's most wanted art thief in director Ross and Marshall Thurber's action comedy, Red Notice. The film follows FBI profiler John Hartley, who was forced to partner with the world's greatest and most notorious art thieves on a daring heist. In addition to Red Notice, Mr. Thurber's other directorial credits include Skyscraper, Central Intelligence, and We're the Millers, the pilot episode of the series Ryan Hansen Solves Crimes on Television, and episodes of the series The Loop and Marry Me. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Thurber shares insight into the making of Red Notice with fellow director Jean-Michelette Serra. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. So, Rosson, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. I hear uh, this movie broke all kinds of uh, Netflix records. Uh, yeah, we uh, yeah we, we we found out uh, this morning that we're uh, the number one most watched uh, feature film in the history of Netflix. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, we did it. We did it in eleven days, uh, so we're pretty excited. We'll see how far we can get. They, they uh, Netflix marks their uh, their openings by twenty eight days, so you have a twenty eight day opening on the platform, and uh, we'll see where we get to. So it's just you and the Squid Game. <laughs> yeah, well, they've got, I think, 10 episodes. Uh, you yeah, know, we've yeah. only got one movie, so we'll see if we can catch them. But um, that's, sure. they've, they've set a high bar. I'm sure. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your process because one of the unique things about you is that you're a writer as well as a, as a director. So, uh, And you've been consistently doing movies every couple of years. So I don't know how you have the time <laughs> to write a screenplay, especially something this big. Um, you've written most of your own movies, right? Yeah, uh, either uh, write them from the ground up or I rewrite uh, somebody else's script. But I think, um, yeah, I think I would be completely useless uh, as a director if I didn't write the screenplay. That's my first opportunity to direct the film. And if I, if I hadn't written uh, the script, I think I wouldn't know where to put the camera. I'd be lost. So when in the when in your life the idea of Red Notice came into your brain was it during Skyscraper before or uh, it was during Skyscraper we were making that movie up in um, Vancouver so I finished uh, I made my first movie that I made with uh, Dwayne Johnson was uh, called Central Intelligence which is an action comedy with Kevin Hart and uh, while we were cutting that movie I came up with the idea for Skyscraper and I pitched it to Dwayne and he said yes and we sold it and then I wrote it and then we were making that movie and I guess I have a habit of like. And maybe you have the same thing of like when you're working on something, you know, and it's all you're doing, it's all compromise and frustration and da, 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 da. And you start thinking about something else. Like a mental vacation. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, exactly. You think about this other story. Um, and of course that other story is more interesting because there are no problems with it yet. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, and so in the back of my mind, as, uh, as we were making skyscraper, I was tinkering with this idea, um, for red notice and, um, and Bo Flynn, our producer who produced Jungle Cruise um, uh, with you um, and Black Adam, of course, uh, we had offices right next to each other in, in production and prep. And I would 
I'd walk into his office and go, Oh, you know, I, I think I fixed that idea for red notice. If I do this, 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 and he's like, Oh, that's good. So I had like a whiteboard in my, in my office and there was like just sort of a margin off to the side where I would scribble little thoughts. And, uh, and so while we were making skyscraper, I kind of this was doing post production, no prep, prep, so yeah. doing prep. You were thinking uh, of another movie. Yeah. That's so probably like your brain. It was split in half. Probably not the best. Um, but yes, exactly. You know, we're just sort of like, you know, tinkering in the back of your mind. And then eventually at some point during, during shooting of, um, of skyscraper, we all went out to, um, dinner, Dwayne, myself, Hiram Garcia, our producer and Bo Flynn, our producer. And I pitched, uh, red notice to Dwayne. And, uh, it was, um, like you went to a steakhouse and they all had steaks and tequila and I had a, like an $80 steak that, uh, I'd never touched. It was like ice cold and, uh, I'm pitching my little heart out to Dwayne and he's listening and, you know, I'm sweating like Albert Brooks in broadcast news and pitch, 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 pitch. And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I get to the part in the movie where the twist happens and it's like, you're actually both the Bishop and blah, blah, blah. And he dropped his fork and knife and he threw the napkin down and stood up and said, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And then I got really drunk after that. That was basically That's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks. So when you had the idea already, you obviously that was, you, you were doing your second movie with Dwayne. So you had Dwayne in mind yeah. for this role. Uh, and you went out pitching it to studios. Yeah. But Dwayne, was there other cast attached at that point or was it just Dwayne? No, it was at that point. So, you know, when the biggest movie star in the world, according to the Body Mass Index, says that he wants to be in your movie, then you're like, oh gosh, I better really figure this thing out. And so I started scribbling. I had this little notebook and I scribbled all my ideas down and wrote Gal Gadot's name um, uh, in there and circled it twice. and. Um, And then we went out to town and pitched it and pitched it to 11 places. And we had 11 offers, which had never happened to me before. And, um, and then we sold it to universal and a bit of a knife fight. And, um, and then I can talk about this if you want to, but it ended up leaving universal and going to Netflix. But after we sold it to universal, you know, in my pitch, I talked about Gal, I never met her and didn't know her, but I'm like, it's Gal Gadot, it's Gal Gadot. And, uh, and so then Bo Flynn put me on a plane and flew me, we flew to London or I flew to London to meet Gal. She was shooting Wonder Woman at the time. And uh, I was in London for 18 hours, but I met her, I pitched her the whole story and she said, I'm in. And then I went away and wrote the script. Uh, and I wrote it with Ryan in mind for that role with his voice in my ear as best I could approximate it. I mean, I'd known him for 10 years in passing, but we'd never worked together. I'd always wanted to. And so I wrote that role for him. I sent him the script on a Friday night and then he, uh, uh, called me the next morning, Saturday and said, I'm in. And so then I had all three. So you got your choices. dream cast basically. Which but, never, yeah, there was never, never it never went to anybody else. It, and we, not only that, but these are you know, three actors at the height of their careers. It's not just three amazing actors, but like all of them at the height. So congratulations. Thank you. And that, so when you fly to London to meet with Gal, I mean, are you nervous? Like, you know, (laughs) I I know I get very nervous, especially if you only have like one opportunity or how do you prepare for a pitch? Yeah, that's a, that was a great question. Um, Yeah, I guess I have butterflies. Like I think anybody would. I think whenever you care about something, you know, if you don't have that little... a little bit of butterflies, you're probably not in the right job or you probably don't care enough. But I don't think I was like nervous, nervous, but I, you know, you, you, you know, you want to do, you, you hope she says yes. So then I pitched her, but she's like the most charming and the nicest. And so like, as soon as you meet her, you're sort of disarmed anyways. You're never, you're not nervous like 30 seconds after you meet her. Cause she won't, she doesn't allow that. She wouldn't allow that. She's so kind of warm. And, uh, but I will say 
that pitching gal, there were two people in the whole process of pitching 11 places that had without question the sort of the most, the smartest questions about the pitch. And it was Tom Rothman and Gal Gadot. They were the two people who asked the smartest questions and almost kind of figured it out before we got there. That's great. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the production process because sure. you had a very easy production, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> this is the hardest so film I've ever made. You basically, just to give a bit of context, you know, obviously we all know that the pandemic happened and some movies were hit in prep, other movies were hit in post, but you were hit right in the middle of it. Yeah, we were, um, I mean, we were I, I literally, I mean, almost to the day, halfway uh, in our shoot. Um, I think it was day, I want to say 38 or 40, something like that. Um, we had a, you know, a 74 day main unit shoot in like 20 something days of, of, of second. And, um, yeah. And we shut down like literally plug pulled. We were supposed to go to Italy the next week to start our, we were had a big car chase planned for the opening of the film that d- didn't end up in it. We ended up having to cut the car chase and come up yeah, with so something Talk else. about the things that changed. That sure. Changed. So, so we shut down for six months and then nobody knew if we we're coming back. And then, you know, Netflix to their credit was like, no, no, we're coming back. I thought we might be like a, like a, you know, uh, a boogeyman story, a nightmare story that, you know, studio executives tell directors before they go to bed of like, you know, remember that movie they almost made the same thing could happen to you. But we, um, red notice, uh, and, um, but we came back and, uh, we had to figure out two things. Uh, well, the first was just like, how do you make a movie under these circumstances? Right? Like there was no vaccine, there were no procedures. Um, you were one of the first movies to come back, if not the first. We were, yeah, I think we might've been the first in the States, uh, certainly this, the first of this, there nothing of this scale, right? And how do you keep these people safe? How do you keep people safe? What are the procedures, practices, protocols, et cetera? Um, and we quarantined like the NBA, right? It was like, two, we bought out two hotels, the whole crew committed to it. I mean, that was really the most amazing thing. The crew in Atlanta um, sacrificed so much to you know, being away from their families um, to go make this movie and really sort of um, embrace that old Hollywood adage of the, the show must go on. And, uh, and they were incredible. We would have been sunk without them. And so we figured it out and, uh, you know, at a, at a hideously expensive cost, right? It's like, and it, you don't even want to know, uh, I don't even actually know, but it, uh, <laughs> uh, how much it cost um, to, to come back under COVID protocols is really, really expensive. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is we couldn't go to, Rome. We couldn't go to Sardinia. We couldn't go to Paris. We couldn't, we had all these plans, you know, I didn't really want to shoot it in my backyard. I wanted to go, go to these places, but we couldn't. So we had to shoot everything on stage in Atlanta or in the parking lot of the Atlanta Metro studios. So, um, this car chase that we'd planned, I cut it and came up with the foot chase through the museum. Um, and the scaffolding sequence. And I thought, Oh, what if Ryan hangs a hard turn and he's in a wing that shut down uh, uh, so it's basically empty and he and Dwayne are chasing each other six feet apart. Um, <laughs> and we bring in, you know, some stunt players and we do our best. Um, and so the thing is you were finding out all these rules, mm-hmm. like, you know, I hear that the masquerade sequence was hard cause there's a lot of extras. People were wearing actual K95 mask that you had to erase in post. Yeah, we so in the masquerade ball, which was always supposed to be a masquerade ball, um, but we yeah they were all wearing N95s under their masks. But the other part is like we couldn't have that many people in the room. So when Ryan and Gal and Dwayne are in sort of Oche's ballroom, essentially, 
there's nobody else there. Uh, it's just them. They're dancing in an empty room, like something out of The Shining, I guess. Yeah. And then we then we brought in the extras in in layers afterwards and reshot with a Steadicam, um, sort of poor man's motion control. Um, cause we couldn't, we didn't have the time to did actually you do it do, right after the shot with the beta actors. No, or we you did the whole scene. And we did the whole scene go back. They go back so and painful. it's unbelievably painful and unbelievably slow. And, and it, there were no good options. Um, but I, it looks great though. Obviously I mean, you. I've seen the movie twice now and, uh, I couldn't tell. Oh really? And it doesn't feel like, uh, I don't know if anybody here knew that, but. Yeah, you know, it doesn't feel like any shots were compromised. You know? Oh my gosh, that's you so know, nice to hear. I, have, I would, I would know, hug shots. you if I was allowed to. No, but it's, um, it's, it feels like, you know, because when you have those restrictions, you tend to limit your camera moves. Yeah, and and you know, like talk a little bit about like, I'm really curious actually how you did the first shot. Mm-hmm. In, not after the credits. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. The one in in Rome that you go from Rome into yep. chasing the cars. Cool. And then and then all the layers that you did on that. Well, uh, that was uh, after the pandemic started. Yeah. I assume. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was um the opening shot. But uh, well, I mean, most of the stuff, even the the layering of the dancing and and all of that, is a real credit to our visual effects team. When we started the movie, it was not supposed to be a visual effects film, and we had you know four hundred visual effects shots, which for a film of the size is not altogether that much, and when we came back, we ended up having over 1500. So almost quadrupled the amount of shots, which is, you know, but we had, um, ILM Craig Hammock uh, at ILM being, uh, our lead supervisor there. He's incredible. We had Richard Hoover as our, uh, uh, VFX supervisor. Uh, he won the Academy Award for Blade Runner 2049. Blondell Adu was our producer. So we had great people to help us. But in terms of that first shot, so this was something that um, I was super excited about. Marcus Forder, my in- incredible cinematographer, uh, who's this sort of German wunderkind who you know is tall and um, soft-spoken, and he cares about two things only: um, movies and chocolate. And I'm not sure it's in that order. Um, uh, he and I really wanted to do a, a big, big, fun wonder to start, and we found this incredible race drone operator named Johnny FPV, um, who you can look him up on YouTube or or um, Instagram. He's the probably the greatest race drone operator working today. He looks like he's about 12 years old and, um, he's incredible. And we, uh, we all went to Rome after we wrapped, we went to Rome for a splinter unit for a few days. And so that shot, I wanted that shot to look like a very standard, uh, uh, sort of helicopter shot that you would open over the rooftops of Rome. And then I wanted it to, uh, change axis and dive bomb down between this Canyon. And, um, the way we achieve the shot where it starts high dives through and ends up in a close up of Dwayne and a city cam or a one or all the way in is through, um, a few pieces of technology. The first is, um, the red, uh, camera system, the red digital cinema created a, a camera, a six K cinema, cinema grade, uh, camera called the Komodo cam, which is about the shape of a size and shape of a tissue box. And we connected it to Johnny's race drone. And we actually were able to achieve shots that had never been done before uh, in the history of cinema because the technology didn't exist until about six weeks before we used it. So we we started with the race drone and we uh, dove down between the buildings and all the, way, all the way across the bridge. That was the last piece we shot. The first piece we shot was in Atlanta with Dwayne getting out of a parked car with a Steadicam. And we steady cam uh, and led him and and Ritu Arya into uh, into the museum, and then we shot plates for that in real Rome, and we stitched together the drone shot and hooked it up uh, into the steady cam shot that we shot in Atlanta, and and that's how we did it. When you shot Dwayne, he was alone. 
had some it, extras. Yeah, in that, no, no, in that one, it was just Dwayne and Ritu, just those two people. Right. So you so had to do the extras as well as another pass. We had to pass. do the extras as, as another pass yeah. in Atlanta. It's completely simple. Oh my God. Very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it, was an, it was a nightmare. It was a, a, an actual nightmare. Well, it's very worth it. You have a lot of shots in the movie that I think for the restrictions that you had, you know, these kinds of sweeping so- shots, I guess it's with the same drone or the same piece of equipment yeah. that are really, even in the final mine shaft, yeah. there is like shots that are pretty, you know, there's no other way to do them. You no. Know? Um, uh, we were really excited really, about it. Um, they give the energy that in other ways, maybe the pandemic took away from it and you found the solution for it. Oh, thank you. That is pretty... Pretty cool. Yeah, I, I'm really th- those shots, especially. I'm how, really. How really do you go about like doing your action sequences? Because you're a writer, mm-hmm. you deal a lot in comedy, mm-hmm. and you do this high end action. And how do you balance all of that? Where do you start in the design process? Do you start with the action, or you start with the comedy, or? Oh, I think I, um, I think I start with the story uh, first. Like I don't think about it mm-hmm. in that in that way necessarily. Um, so the, you know, the first thing I'm, cause I write them and the first thing I try to do is just picture the, the scene or the sequence on the, you know, movie screen on the inside of my forehead, um, uh, and how, I, how I want it to feel, how I would cut it. And then I try to write that down in as few words as I possibly can, more or less. And then, um, and then, you know, I really love action comedy. I love action adventure comedy. Um, I just find like when that's done really well, it's so satisfying um, to get make have people laugh and to have them, you know, give them some thrills or chills and, you know, uh, a, a fun, entertaining experience. Those are the kind of movies I loved growing up. What what kind of movies what, that inspired you on? on oh, I mean, I think that, you know, anybody who's Red Notice, I think it's obvious that Raiders was a pretty big inspiration for me. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, certainly uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that whole trilogy um, or quadrology. What's what's for five? Because now they're making a fifth one. Um, anyways, uh, the the OG trilogy, and uh, you know, there's a bunch of films that that inspired Red Notice, um, Raiders, Thomas Crown Affair, the original one, the the remake as well, Oceans uh, Eleven a little bit. Um, you know, I even thought um, Guy Ritchie's Man from Uncle was really a, f- a fantastic film and, and beautifully shot. So we, we looked at that National Treasure a little bit, you know. But there's plenty of you know films before that. There there are movies before 1982. And do do you review any of those movies with your cinematographer or anything, or something that? Before, yeah, we we watch. Um, gosh, uh, you know, we don't. Sometimes we'll watch a film all the way through. Sometimes we watch sequences that we remember liking, and then you watch it and you go, "Oh, that wasn't as good as I remember." Oh my god, how did they do that? So right. we definitely spend a lot of time watching other films, mostly for you know for tone, um, camera movement, uh, etc. Um, uh, so that's definitely a part of the process. But Marcus and I. I don't know how you, how you work. I'd be curious to know, but um, he and I uh, uh, shot listed the entire film together uh, before we, you know, for we spent two or three weeks in in a room just right. going through every scene, and you know, it's great to have that it's just so you can not do it, yeah. you know. And then after the pandemic, and you went away for six months, 
did Marcus go away? I, I, you know, did he go to Germany or did he came to LA? He went. He 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 actually got married. Oh yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. COVID style. Um. And then this is how great Marcus Forder is. If I don't know if there are any directors, but if you get a chance to work with Marcus, you should hire him. Um. He was on his honeymoon. Got married, went on his honeymoon in Sardinia because we scouted Sardinia and he loved it. And he said, we should go to Sardinia. So he and his new bride, um, who's a gaffer, by the way, um, went to Sardinia and and Marcus on his honeymoon went and shot plates for, for, <laughs> for, our, for the yacht scene that we ended up shooting in Atlanta. So on his honeymoon, he went and shot plates for us. So the plates that then you use, I guess, an LED. Yes, yeah, so yeah. we had so we had an LED wall for the yacht. Um, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, like um, I've only shot a couple things on boats, but it's a nightmare. Oh, yeah. And so, 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 I mean, you know, yeah. better, way better than I do. But I highly recommend checking out an LED wall with, yeah. a, with a boat. It's it's heavenly if you can yeah. if you can pull it off. No, that's great. Um, and how was your relationship with um, your production designer and 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 I, like, how did that change during the pandemic? Because for instance, in that first shot, when they enter the museum, that entrance of the museum had to be built, yeah. which is a huge set. It's, it, it's a massive set the, the, that was probably not in the budget and probably no. not. So, so how, during the pandemic, how, how did you, you had it like Zoom meetings like every day, basically trying to figure this out? Well, during the pandemic, we, uh, you know, for six months, like the first couple months, people are just you know, doing their own thing. We're, we're checking in once a week. And then as we got closer to look, we're coming back, you know, I started sending out pages, like here's the new ideas. And then we would have meetings and discuss them. But our production designer is a, is a, an incredible talent. His name's and- Andy Nicholson. Uh, he was nominated uh, for an Academy Award for Gravity. Um, and he was just unflappable and has impeccable taste. And I think it's evidenced by um, what we were able to achieve in this movie. You know, we, we had to build that lagoon uh, where they and we built that lagoon. We built the jungle. There's a the jungle was a forty by forty set piece essentially. Um, uh, he built that entire museum. Uh, the uh, when you go in and you see the egg, um, the egg room when you first see it. Uh, after we leave that, then he redressed it to use it as the scaffolding room. It's the exact same room. All the hallway chases, there's like two hallways that we had and we just redressed and shot the other way. I mean, just every single trick in the book because we had no choice, you know? Um, and so Andy Nicholson, uh, you know, is just, I mean, he's just a genius. So no, no, it looks, the movie looks, looks amazing. And, Thanks. uh, it's a movie that is very complex. Um, I cannot imagine um, you know, it has so many twists and turns, but every piece really fits nicely with the next. Mm, thanks. Um, so, you know, how sometimes, you know, you write a script and then there's a bunch of notes that come in. Yeah. So I cannot imagine having something so delicate and, you know, how, how protective of, are you of that? So yeah. make sure that it doesn't come all apart. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm relatively protective <laughs> of, of, of what I've written. You know, I, I try to stay open and try to, um, you know, if I'm, if something's not working, I certainly, if there's an, a concern from an actor who has to play a part, like that's all fair game. Um, but I typically, how I put it together is typically how I want it put together. And with this one, it was really tricky because there's an A side and a B side motivation uh, to everything that Dwayne does and everything that Gal does as they're conning uh, Ryan and and the, their only goal, right? Because Dwayne and Gal, if if Ryan didn't exist, they could get their hands on the first two eggs with no problem. 
but they can't win the game unless they have all three. And the only person who can get them all three is Ryan. So the whole movie is about them uh, trying to trick Ryan. And the only way to trick Ryan is to build rapport between Dwayne and Ryan so that Ryan trusts Dwayne's character. And the moment that happens, which it happens on the, on the, on the beach, of course, where, where Ryan's character literally puts down the only thing he cares about, the egg, and goes into the water to try to help Dwayne. And at that moment, the trap is sprung, and then that's when we reveal it. So the whole everything that Dwayne's character is trying to do is not get the egg, not catch Ryan, not do any of that. He just wants Ryan to believe not only that he's a cop, but also that they're friends. And once that happens, it's over. And it's it's really um, fun to watch with an audience when it when the no, trap no, is sprung. No, no, it's very intricate. But also all the business, you know, like in these movies, it's fun to watch all the pieces come together, you know. And how much research do you do into like, you know, for instance, in the scene in the museum, like when he's uh, holding an infrared iPad to, you know, you say gold yeah. flex radioactivity, you know, like, is that something in every aspect of it, all the sort of Nazi documentary, all the mm -hmm. things that, that you put in there, do you do a lot of research? I, I do. I mean, I do enough to get myself in trouble. Um, and then I, I make sure that I don't... Um, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not leg bound to fact. Right. So, so especially like within the, in the Nazi documentary, like I'm a huge, I probably watch more, more history channel than I should. Uh, my wife will tell you that. But if like, if there was a show on the history channel called like Nazi Bigfoot aliens of Egypt, I would never stop watching that show. Like that would be my show. So, um, so even actually the voiceover, the guy who does the voiceover at the beginning, his name is Robert Clotworthy and he does the voiceover for a show called ancient aliens and a show called the curse of Oak Island, which are big shows on history channel. So that was a this unique pleasure for me to use his voice at the, at the top. But, um, yeah, just, um, sort of inventing my own history and part of, um, and, and, and I've found that it's really, um, when you're trying to pull a fast one, if you, if you dress up the edges with real historical fact, you can kind of get away with a cheat in the middle because you've, you've gussied it up enough where people believe it. And one thing that was super fun in pitching the story when we were in a, went around to studios, I would talk about Cleopatra's eggs. Of course, Cleopatra's eggs, you know, the story and da, 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 da. And they thought it was legend, but they actually found them. You can go see them in the, uh, you know, you know, Egyptian museum or whatever. And, um, what was really fun is, is to watch people go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cleopatra's eggs. Right. Yep. Yeah. I saw that. And then, um, and, and then of course I would let them off the hook at the end, but, um, but yeah, uh, so that, that part's always really fun. I'm a sucker for that in, in movies myself. No, that's fun. Let's talk a little bit about post-production. You've been working mm -hmm. with amazing editor, Mike Sale for four movies. Yep. So how was your work process? You know, he's obviously, um, you have a very close relationship with him now at this mm -hmm. point. So. Yeah. Mike sale has, has come my last four movies. He's, um, fantastic. Uh, he's a friend. Um, I think he's a, a wonderful, wonderful editor. Um, uh, Mike sale and Julian Clark cut skyscraper and they cut red notice. Um, and they're, they're both excellent. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's evolved. Uh, I mean, we have, obviously we have a shorthand at this point. We've, we've been in the trenches together. We've, we've had screenings that didn't go well, you know, movies that weren't working and, and we've, you know. Yeah. Maybe talk a little about the, obviously with comedy, it's hard to know when things work until you put it in front of an audience. That's exactly right. So you, you shoot a lot of takes, do you improvise mm -hmm. a lot and then you try through screenings through that to figure out what works and what doesn't? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, roughly, yeah, that, that, um, you know, I write, I would say, 
85% of 85, 90% of red notice is from the script, but that 10, 15% of improv makes all the difference. Um, and Ryan Reynolds is so gifted in that space that he, he brought so much to the table and especially him. But yeah, I mean, anybody who knows anything about comedy will tell you that, you know, they don't know anything about comedy, which is to say that you don't know what's funny. You might you believe it's funny, but you don't really know what's funny until you put it in front of an audience and they either laugh or they I, don't. I heard you had like a, a Zoom screening. A Zoom yeah, Zoom that screening. was a terrible. It was kind, of, seems kind of weird. Oh my God. We, well, we had no choice and, and we had to put it up. And so we, we played the movie for an audience. I don't even remember where, um, you know, and it's, it's a half full audience with people in masks and you're a thousand miles away you know, on Zoom, essentially watching people react, and that was a really hard thing to not be in the in the in the in the audience in the in the seats with the audience and feel when they got bored or confused or what was working. And it wasn't until I want to say halfway through our editing process that we finally got clearance to actually be in the theater with the audience, and that just changed everything for us. And we went, you know, the movie got much better, uh, much more quickly at that point, but. There was, I mean, from the moment we got shut down to the moment the movie came out, it was just, there was not an easy part of this film. Um, uh, not even a little bit. Great. Well, I'm just going to end with my last question. Sure. I just want, you know, to know, like, what movie or when did you decide to become a director? What made you? Gosh, uh, I don't know if there was a specific movie where I'm like, that's Is what there I want. a moment? Did you, yeah, well, I mean, it was probably, no surprise, it was probably Raiders. Um, I was, uh, I think I was seven, maybe? Seven? seven that's pretty young. Yeah. And, and I mean, when I fell in love with movies and, and uh, you know, my mom took me to see Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, I remember there was a buzz in the lobby as everybody was getting ready to go in. And my mom turned to me and she said, look, this movie's really, really exciting and you're not going to want to go pee during it. So you better go pee right now. And my eyes were about as big as saucers. And I went, and the, the point of the story is I went, I went pee. Uh, and then I went and saw the movie and, uh, and it changed my life. Well, thank you, Russell. An amazing movie. Thank you. Congratulations on your success. Jama, thank you. Thank you all for coming out yeah, on the, thank you, everybody. the day before Thanksgiving. It's very kind. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 